Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. But the interesting thing about jury selection is everybody says, you know, how did you pick your jury? Well, you don't actually get to pick your jury. You just get to strike off the people that, you know, terrify you. So you're often left with jurors that you would not pick, but they're better than the ones that you managed to get rid of. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, uh, this is Steve Lowry here with uh, Yvonne Godfrey. And Yvonne, I should say, uh, buongiorno. <laughs> That's right. You're back from <laughs> vacation and you brought yes. me a present, which was very nice. I brought you a very small present, but uh, it, it uh, doesn't mean that uh, I, I don't think a lot about you. It's <laughs> actually, all I can carry in my bags. <laughs> actually, I got back in from out of town and I was totally out of all food and had no coffee in my house. <laughs> and I went to stop by the office on my way home and there was the perfect size bag of delicious <laughs> coffee waiting for me from yeah. you. So. Venetian coffee from Yeah, Italy. it was delicious. I already had some. Yeah, good, good. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Definitely. Um, and I guess we should say, I mean, nobody knows this on the podcast and nobody probably cares either, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> we're losing Yvonne in, uh, in where we normally podcast from in Savannah. Yvonne uh, is moving up to Atlanta. That's true, but nothing will change for the podcast. Right. In fact, we rarely are able to record while we're in the same room. So the podcast yeah. will continue. Yeah, exactly. Except you'll just be in a new cool apartment overlooking the city of Atlanta. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> more, more for our listeners to not look at. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, Yvonne, I am. Uh, I, I just want to say I'm very excited about our guest today. I think this case that uh, that uh, we have to talk about is a, a fascinating case, but it's also. Um, as you were saying before, a little bit, uh, a little bit scary, uh, because uh, especially for women's health. Um, but let's first introduce our guest. We're talking to Zoe Littlepage today. Uh, Zoe is a partner at Littlepage Booth Leckman in Houston, Texas, and you can look up Zoe at littlepagebooth.com. Zoe, how are you doing? Very good. Thanks for having me. Well, we are so glad to have you on here. And the, and the case that we're going to talk about is, uh, I'm going to give the full name, is uh, Rowett Forrester Schofield versus Wyeth, uh, which was tried in Washoe County, Nevada, back in October of 2007. And it, it resulted in uh, what I should say is three separate verdicts for each of the plaintiffs. That's Rowett, Forrester, and Schofield. Um, each uh, Rowett received a verdict of over $43 million. Uh, Forrester received a verdict of over $47 million, and Schofield received a verdict of over $43 million uh, for a total verdict of $134,128,909. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But, uh, but, uh, but first, I want to talk a little bit about you, Zoe, so we can let all of our listeners know who you are and, and, and what you do. Okay. So, uh, so Zoe, has, um, is, as I already said, is a partner in her law firm. Zoe is a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, which is a um, uh, very prestigious organization that only allows in 100 members from across the country uh, who are, are sort of the elite of plaintiff's lawyers. Uh, Zoe has also um, 
received the Pursuit of Justice Award from the ABA uh, Tort Insurance Practice Section, and otherwise known as TIPS. She's been named not only as uh, America's 100 Most Influential Trial Lawyers in 2011 and 2013, but she was named as America's 50 Most Influential Trial Lawyers in uh, 2016 and 2017 by the National Trial Lawyers Association. Uh, it goes without saying uh, that she is a, has been a super lawyer every year since uh, since 2011. Um, and Zoe has... Uh, uh, also been named as one of the top 12 lawyers in the U.S. by Fortune magazine. I've heard of that magazine before. <laughs> um, so the, um, and Zoe has taught at a number of law schools uh, around the country, including uh, University of Houston, NYU, University of Arkansas, and Stanford. Um, some pretty good law schools there. Um, and Zoe has written sections in textbooks, has received uh, a number of multi-million dollar verdicts. And, uh, and we're so happy to have you on here, Zoe. Thank you. So uh, I, I noticed from looking at your CV, Zoe, that you spent a little bit of time in our neck of the woods, but then, uh, then left very quickly. You were at Emory Law School for a little bit. I was, a beautiful law school. I loved yes. my year in Atlanta. But then, but then didn't stay long. You, you got back to Houston. I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, let's talk a little bit about this case. So um, I'm going to give a little bit of background on this, Zoe, and if I, if I mess it up, just, uh, just let me know. Um, but so this case involved the drug of Prempro, uh, which was made by Wyeth. Uh, and essentially, this was the, the combination of two different drugs, uh, Premarin, which was the estrogen drug, and progesterone, or progestin, which is uh, uh, progesterone. And uh, I'll go through the history a little bit, but Zoe did a, a fantastic job in her opening statement of uh, talking through the history of these um, uh, drugs and how they came together, um, which is very complex, but uh, I, I love the way you simplified it in your opening statement, and, and we'll talk about that some more. But, but essentially, uh, estrogen was uh, first given before 1975 as a, a postmenopausal drug in order to you know, control hot flashes and things like that uh, until uh, it was realized that there was a, uh, a heavy increase in endometrial cancers. Uh, and so then uh, uh, Wyeth came up with the idea of, well, I guess other, a bunch of companies came up with the idea of mixing progesterone and, and, and estrogen together to, I guess the idea was to protect the endometrial lining. Uh, and then, but nobody really did any sort of testing on what these two drugs in combination did together. Uh, and nobody it seemed was paying attention to the fact that since 1975, uh, incidents of breast cancer were increasing uh, every year. Uh, and Wyeth came up with a drug where they put these two into one pill and, um, and did no um, testing. And that, that seemed to be pretty well established throughout the trial. Um, and then uh, essentially there was a government study, that a plan to do a government study for about 15 years and sounded like, Zoe, that four years into that study, there were so many incidents of breast cancer in the test subjects that the, that the government decided to just call off the testing altogether. Um, and, and so this case Im involved three women, all of whom uh, lived in the, uh, in the Reno, Nevada area, all of whom had, had breast cancer and had been taking um, Prempro. Uh, for various amount of time, and so this case was uh, uh, 
against Wyeth for their failure to really do any type of testing, to really do any type of warning about uh, you know the increased risk of breast cancer, and um, and again, just a fantastic result in what. Um, you know, from a scientific standpoint, had a lot of science involved and, uh, and, you know, from explaining that to the jury can always be difficult. But as I said, the opening statement that you did, Zoe, uh, really uh, broke it down in a very clear, understandable way for everybody. Thank you. I mean, look, it's a, it's a terrible history. You've got a company that has a drug that gets figured out in the 1970s as causing cancer below the waist, basically endometrium uterine cancer for women. And instead of saying, okay, well, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't be giving women these artificial hormones. You know, that old story of you, you swallowed a fly and then you swallowed the frog to catch the fly. And that's right. kind of what happens is they come up with this idea is we'll just give women two pills. And the first one, the estrogen will help them with the hot flashes and the menopausal symptoms. And then the progestin won't really give them any benefit, but it will stop them from getting this terrible cancer of the endometrium. And they do absolutely no studies. You know, they've, they've, they, their wise position was we had looked at estrogen and it didn't increase the breast cancer risk. And the, the P, the progestin, isn't um, really there to do anything except protect the endometrium. And so they never tested the two drugs together. They just started using women as guinea pigs. Right. And what, what happened over the years is there was this slow escalation in the number of breast cancers in older women in this country, there wasn't a good explanation for what was going on. And then the government does a study that gets stopped very early because of these alarming findings of breast cancer. The word kind of gets out. In fact, amazingly, the NIH issued a pre-publication press release because they said, we can't even wait the month or two months for the publication to come out. We've got to tell women right now what we're, see what we're seeing. And... You know, these, when women around the country woke up one day and on, you know, every news morning station was your hormone therapy pills can be causing breast cancer, they stopped taking their hormone pills. And the, the incidence rate of breast cancer in older women in the country plummeted within six months. The largest decline in breast cancer rates ever seen in the country wow. happened right after the news got out. Wow. I mean, yeah, and, you know, and from a causation standpoint, and I know that's always an issue in these cases, and that's one that, uh, that Wyeth was defending very vigorously, but, uh, you know, that's almost your best evidence right there is that as soon as that report comes out and they report it, then breast cancer starts uh, plummeting. And never goes back up to those levels. I mean, we never see that same number of breast cancers in older women again after people stopped using the combination hormone therapy at the levels they were doing it. Yeah. Wow. Well, go ahead, Yvonne. Well, no, I was just, was Zoe, when these cases came into you or when you started working on these cases, had you already, um, had you already been aware of that, of that, of this link of these studies, or was it something that you learned in connection with investigating the cases? No, we knew that, that the NIH had issued this release and had said, look, you know, remember the government's the first person who ever studied this combination because Wyeth had been making millions, billions of dollars on the drug and had never spent a penny on doing the right kind of studies. And the government had, you know, the FDA had asked them repeatedly to do studies and they had all these different excuses why they shouldn't do it. And eventually the government kind of took it over for them and, and did Wyeth's study for them. Um, and so we knew that the 
government study had ended badly. We knew it had shown an increased risk of breast cancer. We knew that there had been this dramatic decline of breast cancers. But what, what is the job of the lawyer during a litigation like this is to figure out why the drug does it. Because we have to be able to explain to the jury how you take a pill in the morning and you end up with breast cancer. I mean, you've got to, right. to figure out that scientific link. So we had sort of a general feeling that we were right, but you had to really dig into the science to figure out mechanically, mechanistically, why does this drug do this to these women? Uh, who's susceptible? Who's most susceptible? Those kinds of things. Got it. Yeah, and I read, you know, some of the science, uh, you know, I was following in the in the opening and closing statements about, you know, um, that the, I guess the endometrial lining or the or the womb is the most sensitive place for a, a woman when it when it's subjected to hormones, but the second most sensitive is are, are the breasts, and um, and then that all of these cancers that, that you were involved in were uh, hormonal positive breast cancer. Um, can you explain what that means from a scientific standpoint and a causation standpoint? Yes. So there's basically two types of breast cancer that a woman can get. She can get breast cancer that is fed, promoted, and grows using hormones. And then she can get cancers that have nothing to do with hormones and are not uh, in any way um, related to hormone exposure. For older women, um, who have had very difficult menopausal symptoms. So I'm a, I'm a woman in my 50s. I'm going through menopause. I have significant mood swings and hot flashes. You know, my body's screaming. You do not have natural hormones anymore. Interestingly, I'm actually now at a low risk of getting breast cancer because whatever abnormalities I have in my breast from my age, which is what we expect as you get older, you have more abnormalities everywhere in your body, which is why... We get cancer at higher rates as we get older. So I walk into menopause with some abnormalities in my breast that could turn into breast cancer. But if I um, am having a lot of menopausal symptoms, I'm actually not really at risk of getting hormone-positive breast cancer. I don't have enough natural hormones to feed those abnormalities and promote them into cancer, except when I take Wyas All-You-Can-Eat Buffet. And every morning I give my body just a wash of hormones and those abnormalities just start feeding and growing and now I have breast Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. <laughs> uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. 
Right. So, and talk about, so, you know, one of the big issues in this case was, you know, what Wyeth should have done, you know, whether or not they should have done testing and it appears that they did very little, if any. Um, and, and then, you know, what they should have known. And I guess, you know, one thing I was wondering as I was reading through the opening and closing was um, we, we know that Wyeth was admitting that they weren't doing uh, any testing, but was there outside evidence that was showing that Wyeth should have been following that was showing that breast cancer was going up or breast cancer was was related to these two drugs being used together? I mean, even worse, and this is the really scary part, because this is the part that I think truly outraged the jury, is that there were some red flags through the years as independent scientists might do a small study. So yes, you could say it was a small study or they might um, start an inquiry into whether the E plus P was causing breast cancer. And instead of uh, you know, taking those, that study on and making it bigger and getting more robust results, Wyeth took active steps to shut those people down. I right. mean, if you went to a breast cancer symposium and you were a researcher and you said, look, my preliminary results are showing some problems with E plus P, I mean, you got on Wyeth's blacklist and you didn't get research grants and they brought the power of a large drug company down on you. And right. we have their internal documents where they're saying, we've got to make sure this person is never invited back to speak. We've got to make sure their grants are cut. You know, so I think it's not just what they didn't do, which was they didn't study this combination. They used women as guinea pigs. I think it's also that when these red flags showed up, their response was so inappropriate. Not yeah. thank you for the information. Let me go look some more. It was, oh, oh no, 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 no. That's not going to work for us. We're going to make sure this doesn't get out. Right. And I, I noticed in your um I think it was your closing argument that you had said to the jury, you know, just start with their documents, start with their own documents from the beginning. And I, I think it's always an effective thing at a trial when you can do that, when you can say, go right to their documents. You know, you don't have to look at what we're saying, look at what they were saying. And look what they were saying, you know, we, we, in any litigation like this, the jury gets to see documents no one has ever seen before. You know, the company is forced to open their file cabinets and give us their memos and their chit chat between their researchers and what their marketing team is saying and doing. And, you know, the jury gets to see things the FDA never saw, no government agency ever saw, medical doctors didn't see. They get to see what the people who know most about the drug that employees at Wyeth are saying. And there were people at Wyeth really raising some alarms and saying, whoa, you know, we, this is an unanswered question. Why are we saying it doesn't cause breast cancer? We're not sure of that. We don't have any research that really says that. In fact, there's, this, there's a lot of things out there, suspicions, rumors, potential issues that uh, you know, we don't have answers to. We need to not be making these definitive statements. So. I think, it, I think that's one of the things that really persuaded the jury is when you look at their own words. So there's no lawyer involved. They're not facing a lawsuit. They're just talking to each other as colleagues. There were some very alarming things being raised inside Wyeth that management was squashing and making sure never came to light. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and related to that, one of the things, it, it's all horrifying. Like, re, I didn't know a lot of this until I was reading this stuff from, from your case, and it's all uniformly horrifying. But um, in addition to that, it sounds like, can you talk a little bit about the sort of 
fake or unproven benefits that they were sort of marketing the drug um, as, as promoting that turned out to be absolutely not true? Yeah, so what happened is they, look, they were going along selling a lot of drug to women who were having menopausal symptoms. But then they thought to themselves, look, there's a lot of women going into menopause who don't really have such significant symptoms that they want to take a pill every day. But what if we went to those women and said, look, there's an added benefit. So not only will this make sure you never have a night sweat or you never have a hot flash, but it's also going to help your heart and it's going to help your cognitive function. So you're not going to get Alzheimer's. You're not going to get dementia. We have these great extra benefits of cardiac benefit and cognitive benefit. And they expanded their market dramatically because as older women uh, entering menopause, they were afraid of heart issues and they were mm -hmm. afraid of losing their mental acuity. And that tapped right into those fears. And the other alarming thing about the government study is that the government study was tracking women taking these drugs. It was a large nurse's study. So it, they actually track nurses who are predominantly women for decades over their life. And they look at all kinds of patterns and trends in these nurses. They look at what drugs they take. They look at you know, what medical devices they get. So the nurses study has been a great investment from our government to give us a lot of really good data. Nurses, no symptoms. They go to doctors. They take care of themselves. They're generally healthy. And they're very aware of what's going on in their body. So they're great historians. And the nurses study, that government study, found not only an increase in breast cancer, found there was no heart benefit. In fact, there was more heart attacks mm. in the people taking hormones, but there was no brain benefit. In fact, there was more cognitive decline in the people taking the drugs. So not only were you not telling the truth about the risks of breast cancer, right. but the benefits that you were touting that you didn't know were really benefits, you were just kind of creating them out of whole cloth, turned out to be actually risks. <laughs> yeah, and I, I saw you reference in there that, the, uh, that they were ghostwriting medical articles. Were, they, were, were these some of the articles that they were writing trying to put some medical science behind uh, um, some of these benefits that just uh, absolutely didn't play out when it was actually looked at? Absolutely. And they would write some of them from scratch. Their marketing department would write a, a medical journal and then shop it. So they'd have the journal finished and they would shop around to find a doctor who would put his name on it for a cash payment or for a long-term relationship with Wyeth. And then they would publish it and there would be no indication that Wyeth is the one that actually wrote the document. You know, it's, uh, I mean, this sounds, you know, so much like the tobacco litigation, you know, that went on and, and they're what they did. And I think, you know, some of the stuff that we're hearing in some of the talc cases, some of the opioid cases and the, the roundup cases that are going on now, you know, it, it, I mean, I guess the reason why companies do this is because they, they're making, you know, huge amounts of money. But you think at one point they would start to learn from their mistakes and, um, you know, that this will eventually catch up with them. They'll only learn. That's the importance of the, of the justice system is they are accountable only to juries. They can hide stuff from the FDA. They can misrepresent the benefits and the risks to doctors. But in a courtroom, they have to face the truth in front of a jury, and the jury gets to tell them that what they did was terrible and of more punitive damages. And without that remedy, you will never have corporate accountability because that's right. really the end. I mean, if the government can't save you and your doctor can't save you, the person who stands between you 
an evil corporate motive is a jury who can look at the documents and say, this is not right and it's not going to happen in my community anymore. And so related to that, Zoe, I mean, you knew, um, like we talked about, you knew kind of about this study. We, you, there was a lot of, but there was a lot of scientific investigation that you were going to have to do to make these connections, especially for these women. Um, you know, obviously you fought the good fight and you won for your clients, but what, um, what about, I think a lot of people might've been intimidated by the fact that these women had, that it would have been such a big fight, that it would have, have to, would be such an investigation. And, um, you know, that these women had survived their cancers and were dealing with the after effects and everything like that. But what made you say, this is, this is a fight that you were ready to take on? Oh, I think these women are magnificent. I mean, these are older women who were very trusting of their doctors. They believed that the system would protect them. They believed that drug companies wouldn't do bad things. Um, and they were willing. I mean, they've survived cancer. And they're willing to come and sit in a courtroom for six weeks and take on the most powerful company in, in the country. I mean, how can you not just be so proud to be their advocate? I mean, mm -hmm. what an honor that I got to tell these women's stories because these women were true survivors. And they not just survived their cancer, but they survived and spoke on behalf of every other woman. They stood up and said, no more, no more. You have to tell the truth about your drugs. You can't do this anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's... That, that, that's so great. And, and, um, you know, and that's the kind of clients that you need in order to, you know, uh, shine the light on something like this, but talk a little bit about, you know, these cases, we always talk to lawyers who have finished up a trial, uh, with successful results, but, uh, you know, very little do we talk about the, you know, hundreds, thousands of hours that go into preparation for that. Talk about the, you know, some of the discovery process in this case and, and finding these documents of Wyeth. Was there, was that a big fight or I'm, I'm imagining it was, um, and, you know, and how were you able to, to uncover these documents? So what happened is the hormone therapy litigation was all consolidated in front of an excellent federal judge in Little Rock, Arkansas called Judge Wilson. And Judge Wilson shepherded through the whole, you know, shepherded both the plaintiffs and the defendants through the discovery process. Um, we ended up with millions and millions and millions of documents um, I was lead counsel of the litigation, so I spent one to two weeks a month in Little Rock at, at periods of time um, working with the judge. We brought in a team of law clerks. They were law students that were, work, that were at the University of Arkansas, and they did the first round of review of the documents. They were just reading documents basically 24 hours a day because they'd work at night and they'd work <laughs> right. early in the morning and they'd work around their schedule. And as quickly as possible, we tried to get a handle on what the internal documents showed. It was all electronic. You know, we weren't in a warehouse anymore. It was all on the, on the computer. Um, and we started to build a timeline. And until you build the timeline, because the defendants produce documents, you know, in whatever order they want, but until you can bring them out and put them on a timeline, you can't tell that, you know, on January 1, they knew that there was a real question mark about their product. And on January 3rd, they wrote all the doctors in America and said, our product is great. <laughs> you know? Right, right, you yeah. You can't tell that discrepancy until you put them all on the timeline. And then you start to see that, hey, look, here's Dr. Graham Colditz presenting at a meeting saying, we got a real breast cancer issue. And here's a week later, 
an internal Wyeth memo saying, we got to make sure Dr. Kolitz never gets invited back. Uh, and that's that until you start to sort of see those patterns, you know, you, you, you don't know really how bad the conduct is. And as we started to bring out the documents and put them on a timeline, it was shocking. I mean, we would, I remember Christmas morning, you know, looking through documents is a little bit like mining for gold. You know, you're constantly <laughs> yeah. looking for the good document. And I remember Christmas morning, I was just going to spend like 10 minutes, just look at one or two documents before I uh, went to help the kids open their presents. And I found a memo that said, someone has written in, they want some money for a breast cancer study, but we have a company policy that we will not fund breast cancer studies. <gasps> I mean... Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I remember, I was thinking, oh my God, not only are you recognizing it's a company policy, but you wrote it down. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? right. Um, so you have those moments where you find the really smoking gun document that you think, wow, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you, and the feeling you get once you start seeing documents like that, as far as uh, from a trial lawyer standpoint and, and finding documents that you know just absolutely make your case. I mean, that's a... Uh, you know, uh, in our nerdy world, that's uh, that's one of the best moments. Yes, it is. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about how the how Wyeth tried to defend this case. I, you know, in reading the openings and closings, I, I got some taste of that. But it it, it seemed like um, you know they were fighting a lot on the causation standpoint, trying to say that there's other causes of breast cancer and that you can't really link it to um, uh, PremPro. Uh, and, then, and then just sort of this, you know, argument of, well, you know, all drugs have side effects kind of thing. You talk about some of their defenses and then how you, uh, how you're able to counter those. Look, I think it's very common that you see with companies when they get as far as trial, they know their documents are bad. They know that what happened uh, doesn't look good. And um, if they can't defend the drug and they can't really defend the conduct of the employees, the easy out is just attack the plaintiffs. And, you know, they attack them through challenges to causation. You know, for each individual woman, they want to talk about all of her other risk factors, whether she was heavy, you know, whether she had a family history whether she smokes cigarettes, you know, try and get the jury distracted away from what they did wrong and, you know, try to beat the plaintiffs because they can't really affirmatively come out and say, oh, no, we did everything right and we're a good company because they know the documents look bad. Right, <laughs> right. And then, and then, as far as these uh, these arguments about, um, you know, the, I, I saw that you there was some reference to that there had been a bunch of studies done on this, but it seemed like they were only referencing studies that re, that were talking about estrogen and not estrogen plus pro progesterone. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, talking about the facts that um, that all of these drugs, you know, have have risks, and so when you take drugs, you know that there's going to be some amount of risk, although. You know, when you're taking something for essentially, you know, hot flashes and night sweats and then, you know, I think most women would say they're not going to take that chance if they know they're going to get cancer out of it. I mean, that's not really a great argument, as you pointed out. Well, and look, that's the point. Good. There are good drug companies who make good drugs and they do good research and they bring good drugs to market and they tell the truth about them. And even in good drugs, there are rare side effects. And once you are being honest about the results of your studies, and once you're telling people exactly what they face and what their risks are, 
then it is up to the consumer to decide whether they want to take that drug or not. These people were not, you know, were not dying of some terrible disease that they had to get treatment for. They were taking a drug to, it's a vanity drug, it's a lifestyle drug to make menopause a little easier, to not have to get up in the night and change your nightgown because you had hot, hot flashes. And in that context, if you, I, I know what the benefits are, and if mm -hmm. you tell me that I might get, you know, a toe fungus, I can compare those two. Right. But if you, you know that I could get breast cancer and heart attacks and actually have my brain functioning decline, please tell me that because that ratio doesn't sound that good to me. And the reason we know it doesn't sound that good to older women in America is they stopped taking this drug when they knew the truth. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> right. Can you talk a little bit, Zoe, about how you addressed and explained to the jury? Um, I think a lot of people, especially if they don't know about cases like this, they think that this is what the FDA is for and that the FDA is going to protect them from things like this. Can you talk a little bit about how you explain to the jury the FDA's role and why sort of just because the FDA approves your drug doesn't mean you know, you've done everything that you're supposed to do. Yeah, so here's what people think. People think the FDA has a lab and they have people in white coats and scientists that actually test drugs and do studies. And unfortunately, the FDA does not have that budget and it doesn't even have that mandate. It's not even allowed under the congressional laws to do that kind of work. The FDA is a supervisory role. All testing is done by the drug company and the drug company is supposed to bring their results honestly and fairly and accurately to the FDA. And all the FDA does is just check. I mean, they're just, the, they're just the marker of the grade. They just check off to see that you've done your work. But in a situation like what we had with hormone therapy, we have a severely under-budgeted FDA who had, you know, unfortunately, we had probably eight to 10 examples where the FDA had gone to Wyeth and said, you have to do a study. You have to do a study. Look, all these issues are being raised. Here's a little study that was done independently that's showing breast cancer. You have to do a comprehensive, long-term breast cancer study. But the FDA cannot make them. I mean, isn't that amazing? We have a government agency that cannot require the drug company do something. And so the FDA used the tools it had. It had <clears throat> scheduled meetings. It told them that it was going to really get tough with them. It, yeah. it begged them, yeah, it right. them over and over again. And, but in the end, um, you know, it took a government study to find the truth because the FDA does not have that mandate to require things, and the FDA can't test on their own. Yeah, so I guess I'm wondering, yeah, yeah I saw the, where you were arguing that in the, I think it was the closing, but um, that they essentially didn't do what the FDA was asking, didn't do the testing, and then finally, you know, the government did the testing. Was there, was there evidence that, uh, that Wyeth or was trying to uh, dissuade the government from doing its own testing? Because, I mean, it seems like they knew how it was going to turn out. Well, I think what was really interesting is oh, by then the FDA had sort of really gotten stern and said, you have to do a long-term study. So Wyeth looked around and said, here's what we'll do. We'll give uh, some money to the government study and help a little bit. And it's a 14-year study. We're not going to get results for 14 more years. We're going to be able to sell this drug for 14 more years. And even if the results turn out bad, 
will have had more than a decade more of sales. What they didn't anticipate is that the risk would turn out so quickly and so dramatically because what happened is the government had to break the blind. I mean, had to basically right. stop the study and break open the results to see who was on the drug and who was on placebo because they were seeing such dramatic rates of breast cancer. I don't think WAD anticipated that. So they thought they had bought themselves 14 more years of sales by going to the FDA and saying, look, we're not going to do the long-term study because the government's doing it. And we're just going to be here helping and we're going to give them some free drug and we'll give them a little bit of money. Um, and the government will do our work for us and we'll have an answer in 14 years. And that didn't turn out. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and it's the point you make about the FDA being underfunded. I mean, we see that time and time again in litigation and, and it is something you always got to address with the jury. I mean, we see it in a lot of our product, uh, automotive product cases with NHTSA where, you know, they, the standard go-to is that, you know, this automobile meets or exceeds all FMVSS requirements. I mean, that's, they always say it. And, um, and you know, and, and what nobody understands is, one, they're self-certifying. Nobody comes in from the government to actually see whether or not they do. And they're minimum standards. I mean, they, it's the absolute it's bare minimum you have to do to put a car on the market. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, that's always something hard to, you know, to overcome for a jury because I think most people uh, think, well, if the government said it's okay, then it must be okay. But, uh, but the government is just not nearly as involved as anybody, as anybody thinks it is. Well, and, you know, we got one medical officer assigned to dozens of drugs. I mean, the, everybody that's working at Wyeth knows more about the drug than the medical officer because he's spread very thin over a number of different drugs. And, you know, here we have a company that just won't do what the FDA wants them to do, and the FDA really can't make them. Wow. So, and, and Zoe, I, I saw, it looks like this case took you a little bit more than a month to try. And, um, and I, I guess I'm wondering, how did that break down between, you know, putting up your liability case and then, and then the damages case? And can you talk a little bit about, the, uh, about how you presented damages for each of these women? Yeah, well, um, it was strongly liability and causation. Um, and I, we kind of made that decision because I felt like most people have at least some sense of what it's like to survive breast cancer. They actually have no idea what it takes to develop a drug and do it right or wrong. And right. They have no idea on the science and causation. So we obviously spent and had more experts on those issues than we did on the damages. But on the damages, we had the women's treating physicians and we had the women, we had their spouses um, testify about what the family and the women had gone through. And it's horrific. You know, you get yeah. breast cancer, you basically, the first year is terrible. You know, you're going through the surgeries and the chemo and the radiation and, you know, that's really awful. Then when you get to about the one year mark, you should be done with the active treatment. And now you start the waiting game because every, at the beginning, every three months, you go back in for your testing and you have, you know, this the week coming up to the testing, you have all those fears of it's going to be back. And if it's back, I'm going to die this time. Then you go in for the testing and then you've got about 48 hours before the phone rings. And, you know, you've got that feeling in your heart where like, I don't, don't even want to answer the phone. Right. Um, and for, for some of our women, they'd had mastectomies. So they had significant disfiguring, uh, significant impact on the intimacy of their, of their marriage. Um, 
And it's, you know, this is not a trivial thing. And we felt like the jury, we would understand this is not a trivial thing. This is not like I broke my finger and it's going to get better in a month. This a cancer diagnosis is something that stays with you, not just through that first year of treatment, but all through your life as you worry and wonder and, and, and deal with the residual issues of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you know, one of the thing, one of the defenses that I noticed that, uh, that they were uh, raising and you addressed was the fact that PremPro or some version of PremPro was still on the market, which I found, you know, knowing that they had this study that they had to end at four years when it was supposed to go at fifteen, a little bit shocking. But but to talk a little bit about that, about you know how PremPro stayed on the market and what or what version stayed on and how it was different. Yeah, so the PrimPro that my clients took um, was a much higher dose and was basically marketed for you to take for life because it was going to give you these cardiac and these brain benefits that even when you were no longer having hot flashes, um, because it was sold as preventive, sort of like vitamins. If you don't take your vitamins, you stop getting the, the preventive benefits of vitamins. So they had sold it as vitamins. You take it at the beginning for your hot flashes and your vaginal dryness, and then you take it for the rest of your life for all these other add-on, what we now know is pretend benefits. So uh, when the government study came out and the sales plummeted, they lost like 86% of their sales in the first couple months. Um, they panicked and they said, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. And within about a year, they brought a low dose PremPro to market with a whole new set of instructions. This was only for people who were having severe menopausal symptoms. It was only supposed to be taken short term, three, six months. It was not designed for any preventative benefits. So, you know, they, they brought out something um, that had very strong warnings uh, that told women exactly what might happen to them if they took it. It came with instructions to only use for a very limited time frame. And it was a lower dose. So, you know, that's the drug that my women should have taken. Right. You know, what was then on the market was what I believe is good, responsible drug manufacturing practices, which is you offer a product that some women need because their, their menopausal symptoms are severe. They really need that transition for three to six months into menopause, and then they need to get off it so that they don't encounter any you know, elevated risk of the breast cancer, and they don't need to be taking it thinking they're going to get a heart or brain benefit. Yeah, you know, from a, I mean, I mean, that's a great evidence for you to show here's what they should have done from the very beginning. So it's one of those times when the defense, I'm sure, is putting up some evidence that they think is going to help them. Uh, because they're saying, hey, PrimPro is still on the market. If it was so dangerous, it'd be gone. But, you know, the counter to that is, no, this is a totally different drug, and it's and they're doing it the way they should have in the first place. If they had just done this from the beginning, none of us would be here right now. Correct, and um, I think that's what the jury saw, is that when they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar, then their next step was what they should have done all along, which is act like a responsible drug company. Limit the number of people taking it only to the people who really need it, only for exactly as long as they need it, and only at the lowest possible dose. Listening to this, and, um, and I'm still just, I think I'm even more horrified than when I read everything and we started talking about it. Um, I'm dying to know what jury selection was like, how long it took, what kinds of... Um, what your jury ended up looking like, that kind of thing. Our jury worried us. Um, and <laughs> even worse, um, 
you know, the jury went out and I can't remember, they had some easy question that they sent back by the end of the day, like what time were they supposed to leave or something. But because they sent some information back, we knew who the jury foreman was because he'd signed the question. And it was terrifying. Our jury foreman was um, a, a juror that if I'd had another strike, I would have struck. You know, he was not at all what I thought I was looking for in a juror. He was a former Marine, small business owner. He sat for the first two, maybe two and a half weeks of the trial with his arms kind of crossed, uh, you know, not at all receptive to our evidence. Um, and so the fact that he was leading the jury was terrifying. In fact, I went home that night and I actually called all the plaintiffs uh, to the office after, after court. And I said, look, I need to tell you that the juror that is most concerning to us is our foreperson. So you need to prepare yourself that we might lose, you know, and, and we talked about how to deal with it and don't let Wyatt see you cry. Don't let them see that they've beaten you. You hold your head up. You know, you've gotten what you wanted, which is you got a chance to tell your story and have the jury hear you. Um, and then when the jury came back with their verdict and we got to talk to that foreman, he had wanted to give an even bigger verdict. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was so outraged because as a small business owner, his attitude was there's a right way to do business and there's a wrong way. And, you know, you did, you took the greed, the, the, the evil motive, all the bad parts of bad corporate culture, and you make everybody look bad. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast and that's legal technology services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. You know, I was trying to think, okay, do you want, you know, do you, do you want women um, on your jury, as many women as possible. But then it's like at the same time, I think everyone has a woman, at least one woman who's important to them in their lives. And, and part, of, part of hearing this whole story, it, it horrifies me because yes, I am a woman, but it's also because I think of the loved ones in my life who um, were going through menopause and what they were dealing with and how um, they absolutely would have been looking for relief, especially if it had been marketed to them in a way that really was deceptive and, and abused their trust. It's so, and I, and probably most of your pool or or and clearly the the jurors you ended up with could relate to 
could get angry about that. <laughs> yeah, and, and the documents were really bad. I mean, the things that they were saying showed such clear understanding that they were, that greed was motivating this company and not, you know, profits were first and patient safety was way, way, way down there. But the interesting thing about jury selection is everybody says, you know, how did you pick your jury? Well, you don't actually get to pick your jury. You just get right. to strike off the people that, you know, terrify you. So you're often left with jurors that you would not pick, but they're better than the ones that you managed to get rid of. Right. Um, and, you know, you never, until that jury comes back, you never know what they're thinking. And I think jurors did a, do a very good job of keeping a poker face because they don't want to show a bias because they really are trying to listen to the evidence objectively. And so the, the science of reading jurors during trial is as oh, good yeah. as reading tea leaves, you know, until they come back and you get to talk to them and they get to say, this is when, you know, the tides turn for me, or this is what really outraged me. They really don't show that in the courtroom. I mean, I think by and large in my whole career practicing law, I don't think that I could have guaranteed how a juror was going to vote before they did even once. It's, but yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's just a, you, you, you put on the best case you can um, and you hope your audience is receptive to it. That's yeah. the best I can tell you. Yeah, it reminds me of a case that I, uh, I, I had where we, we did a focus group on it. And it was, uh, you know, one of the focus groups where they got the little dial where if they think what you're saying is positive, they turn it one way. If they think what you're saying is negative, they turn it another and there was this one juror who was uh, an older uh, white male and he just, he was just staying right in the middle. He wasn't turning it, you know, right or left. So we couldn't tell what he, and he just had this sort of, you know, look on his face. Like he just wasn't happy to be there. And uh, you know, and everybody else, you know, at the end, when we started talking about values, you know, everybody else was giving something in the, you know, uh, multi-millions, you know, to 10 to 30 million, let's say. And, and, you know, and he wanted to give like a hundred million dollars. And I was like, where did, this guy come from that, um, you know, where, where, you know I, I was like, I want that guy, but I would never, I never would have sat there in, in trial and thought that's the guy I want on my jury. Um, and so, uh, but um, I mean, so that leads me to this. Did you uh, have a chance to, to do focus groups on this case? And what were you all looking at in, in those? And if, if you did. We had done in the litigation, in the hormone therapy litigation, we had done some focus groups to sort of focus group the issues and how to present some of the causation. I mean, in most cases in the courthouse, um, you are really defending one issue. Like the defendant is really strong on, we didn't do anything wrong, or we didn't cause your injury, or you're not really as injured as you say you are. In the hormone therapy litigation, they contested everything. We didn't do anything wrong, right. and you can't prove that it caused anything. And even if, if you can, it didn't cause anything to your women, you know? Right. So right. we had sort of focus group that, you know, like how, because it's a lot for the jury to accept that there's no agreement on anything. Like, you know, every single issue you want me as a layperson to decide, it seems a little overwhelming. So we had focus group that in general. Um, we actually did not do a Reno, Nevada specific focus group because we had generally looked at these issues across a couple of different states because the litigation was nationwide. Um, and, you know, our, our jury didn't look great. You know? <laughs> I, I didn't get great loving feelings from them. But, you know, as I said, I, I often don't because I think jurors really do try to, to not show anything and to really be very open to hearing everybody's side. 
Yeah, you know, one thing I was going to point out that you did in your opening that I really liked is you, you were talking about that this was, there was a lot of complex issues and that you were going to take your time, make sure that, you know, everybody understood what you're saying and that, uh, and that nothing was going to go over their head. And you even said, and I wrote it down that, uh, you're, that at some point you might think, please stop repeating yourself because I've got it, which, you know, is one of those things as lawyers we struggle with all the time is you want to hammer home your really good points, but then you, you, you don't want to go so far that the jury just starts getting tired of you. But I, I love that you, uh, you just sort of let the jury know, Hey, look, there's going to be times when maybe I'm making this point again, but it's because I want to make sure you really got it. And you know, I, I would, I would advocate for jurors to be given like a little card. <laughs> right. Yeah. A point, they can hold it up. So you go, okay, I know I don't have to repeat that again. Or if at the end of every day, you could kind of turn to them and say, did you, did you get the point? it's not a dialogue you know they're just a silent audience and so you have to especially on complicated issues and look I know that everybody can't focus you know the entire day and so I know that somebody's daydreaming at some point of every day and you never know what which part they missed and so you yeah. do feel this sort of urge to repeat in case they missed it the first time Oh yeah. I mean, it's something we struggle with all the time. And my, my wife who I, you know, talk about that she's my best focus group, but sometimes when I'm telling her a case, she's always like, you don't have to keep repeating that point. I'm like, well, I just really want to make sure you get it. Yeah. I kind of do. Cause I really want to make sure you get it. <laughs> Well, um, so Zoe, I, one thing I, I, I think you said about this case, is I, I know it went up on, to, on appeal to the Nevada Supreme Court, but did, did parts of this case all, also go up to the U.S. Supreme Court? It did. It did. So and that's what was not the unusual. issue there? That's yeah. not unusual with drug cases is that because each verdict has such an impact on the litigation as a whole, they, the, the drug companies will appeal through every level. It's very unusual for them to sort of give up on any chance of getting a reversal on appeal. Nevada does not have an appellate court. You go straight to the Nevada Supreme. So okay. we went straight to the Nevada Supreme Court with our verdict, which affirmed our verdict in full. Um, and then they took the issue to the Supreme Court on the punitive damages and the multipliers, which were actually pretty good because we had right. taken the remittiture. The verdict had been brought down by the judge into very good value numbers. Um, and so they took a couple of constitutional issues to the Supreme Court. We briefed it, and then the Supreme Court denied cert. So the Supreme Court never accepted the case, which means when the, yeah. the day the Supreme Court denies cert is when the case is then final. There's no more review, and then the verdict has to be paid. And for our for our listeners, I don't know if we can um, we can maybe post this. I don't have the reporter number handy, but the. Um, the, it's a really great opinion from the Nevada Supreme Court on kind of both walking through the facts of the case and the history, but also um, kind of explaining the law about, you know, when, when does this cause of action sort of accrue or where does it accrue when you've got a, when you have something like cancer that's kind of growing, but when, when do you get your diagnosis and all of that um, it was a really interesting um, detailed opinion. Yeah. And it's the Wyeth versus Rowat, R-O-W-A-T-T case. It's a Nevada Supreme Court case. Um, it's, I think, the last time the Nevada Supreme Court has really taken a punitive damage case. And so it's sort of, the, it's actually the law of the state right now on the standards for punitives and what the court is kind of looking for in order to uphold a punitive damage verdict. Um, and it's a great opinion because, as you said, it really goes through 
what the jury heard and why the court felt like the jury was not acting out of any sort of bias or prejudice or undue influence or too much sympathy, but was really logically looking at some very bad evidence. Yeah, when I reading it, I was just like, oh, thank goodness, like, they got it. You know, the Supreme yeah. Court got it. <laughs> I felt the same way. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention, and in, in, uh, it sounds like Yvonne was talking about it a little bit there, was uh, on the verdict form, they, at least on two of your clients, I think they, the jury was asked whether or not they, they were, um, their claim was barred by the statute of limitations. So um, talk about a little bit about how that got tried. I mean, was the jury basically explained what the law is behind, uh, behind statute of limitations and, you know. You can do a little bit. Um, right. There are some limitations of how much a lawyer can describe to the jury what the impact of their verdict is going to be. But what I thought was very persuasive to the jury is Wyeth was standing in the courtroom saying our drug doesn't cause breast cancer, but these women should have known that it caused their breast cancer <laughs> right, right. <laughs> earlier. Right, yeah. <laughs> so they, they didn't sue us quick enough because they, I mean, these women with no medical background should have known to connect their breast cancer with the drug before they filed their lawsuit. But we're not here saying that there should be any connection that anybody should draw. <laughs> they, they, they should have figured out, although they should never figure it out because exactly. uh, it doesn't really exist. Yeah, that, that's one of those, again, one of those great, great arguments that you just uh, have to thank the defense at the end for giving it to you. Yeah, and look, I, I think the defense lawyers are in a bind because yeah. they do want to have this legal affirmative defense of statute of limitations, but their client is not allowing them to admit that they caused even a single breast cancer but they have to pretend that these women should have known of that connection earlier. It's a little <laughs> difficult to, to sell. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, so talk, we're, we're going to do a bonus episode and talk a little bit about this, but talk about some of the demonstrative aids you had in this case. Was there anything that, uh, that stood out to you? Um, we had what I thought was a really good visual aid, which was the progression of cancer. And I think, that was the time when I saw the jury really kind of sit up, uh, was when one of, one of our medical experts was explaining how cancer grows in the human body. And it comes from, you know, one normal cell that doesn't multiply correctly in mitosis, and it turns into an abnormal cell. And then that abnormality turns into a hyperplasia, which is not cancer. You know, it's a, it's a benign lesion, but it's not normal. So you're now between sort of normal and cancer and you've got sort of the hyperplasia. And then that hyperplasia, is, if it's receptive to hormones and gets fed hormones, can turn into a full-blown hormone-feeding cancer. And so we had this, uh, we'd blown up this diagram that we'd actually found in a textbook that I thought was a really good depiction of how the cancer grew. And then what we had used was a, a, a visual in the trial of uh, what, how do we know that this cancer, you know, this drug causes the cancer to grow is that there was some evidence from a bunch of different studies that when women who were diagnosed with breast cancer, so I go in one day and I get a diagnosis of breast cancer and they say, get off your hormones, come back in a month and we're going to do your surgery. And when I come back in a month and they do another ultrasound or mammogram right before my surgery, my cancer has shrunk, sometimes to half the size. 
Mm-hmm. So not only will the hormones grow it, but when you take away the hormones, it will starve it. And so we had this visual of uh, actually one of my neighbor's backyards with a little, um, one of those plastic like, um, kids' houses, like a little playhouse right, yeah. that kids can play in. And you saw it on the grass and then we moved it and you saw that all the grass below it was dead. And our analogy was, you know, cancer is like a seed. If I take a seed and I put it in my desk drawer, it never grows. That's my, that's my abnormal cell. But if I plant it and I give it water and sunshine, it grows into a plant. And if I take that plant and put it in a closet, it dies just like the grass below the, you know, the playhouse. And so that we can kind of see the impact of hormones on these particular type of cancers, that they grow if they're given the hormones, the artificial hormones, and then they shrink and actually get re- reduced in size if you take the hormones away. Wow. I mean, it's really fascinating. It's, I mean, it's horrifying and scary, but it's also very interesting. One of the things also that I thought was interesting is, you know, they brought a pathologist to talk about, he put up the three different slides of the women's breast cancer. And of course, they looked different. You know, the breast cancer appeared in a slightly different part of their breast, so the cells looked different. And his point was, how could there be one common cause? Because these three slides look so different. And they really did. And some of them, one had actually been stained with a slightly different color stains. It was a little deceptive. But right. you know, I'm sitting in the courtroom and I'm thinking, wow, that, that has some logic to it. You know, these cancers look really different. They can't have come from the same source. So on cross-examination, we showed the pathologist three pictures of car crashes. And we said, did you know that all three came from drunk driving? <laughs> That's they a great all point. Different. Yeah. You know, every crash looked completely different. The car had ended up in a different place. It was damaged in a different way. But it all came from the same root cause. Wow. Yeah, that's a great that's a great technique. Well, um, again, this has been uh, just fantastic and and, and great work. Um, a really really important case, um, <clears throat> and I noticed uh, the sound uh, from looking at your uh, at your uh, CV, Zoe. It looks like you tried several of these cases, yes. and um, and and had good results on on several of them. So it's uh, really important work. Yes, it was. It was a really fun. Uh, 10 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it took almost a complete decade for us to get from the beginning to the end of looking at the documents and taking the depositions and then doing a whole bunch of trials all across the country on behalf of really magnificent women. I mean, who had the courage to go in a courtroom and face down this company. Right. Wow. Well, Zoe, is there anything else that we haven't talked about about this trial that you want to make sure our listeners know about? No, I think you've done a great job of at least having the, the, the listeners understand the complexity of putting together a drug case, but that it's not impossible. So if you are injured by a drug, don't think, oh my God, what can I, someone sitting in you know, my small town in the middle of America do against this big, powerful drug company? Yeah. In, in the court system, you are equal. You walk into that court system and the jury has to listen to you as much as they get to listen to them. So we have a great equality in the in the justice system and you can take on the biggest baddest company and you can get justice 
There is one question I had, Zoe, and it's, it, I think uh, in, in uh, pharmaceutical cases, it's a question that comes up a lot, um, you know, and that is that, you know, you've got a doctor there who prescribed this and the companies, you know, always like to point to the learned intermediary doctrine, uh, you know, at least in Georgia, that's what it is. I'm not sure if Nevada has the same thing. I assume they do. Um, but it, Talk about, you know, when you're bringing a case like this, is there ever a decision whether or not you need to include a, a, a doctor? Uh, and, you know, and if you don't, what, you know, what are some of the challenges you might face, you know, for not, you know, not including the doctor? I do not sue doctors. And I certainly do not sue doctors for prescribing medications. Um, because what I have found is that the, the doctor is as much a victim as the, as the women. You know, the doctor can only... Uh, relay on and pass on the information that he's given. And that was the most compelling thing in these cases is that they had just so misrepresented their drug to the doctors, knowing that they would never have to actually face the woman in a consultation setting. They just filled the doctor's heads with all sorts of completely false information about the drug. And the doctor in good conscience passed it on. And I can't blame that doctor. He's busy. He's trying to take care of patients. And he's trusting that the drug companies have a corporate culture that's reasonable and appropriate. And so, you know, some of the testimony at trial is often these doctors, you know, will turn to the jury and talk about feeling duped. I mean, feeling like they were lied to. Because, and it's certainly in hormone therapy where it was a vanity drug, no doctor was telling a woman you had to take this drug or you were going to get sick. They were saying, you know, this is an option that could make your life a little easier and leaving it up to the woman. And so as soon as the truth came out, many, many doctors said, I'll never write another prescription for hormone therapy again. It's not a needed or necessary drug and the risks are too high. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, I thought one of the things you pointed out that she did a great job of talking about was that, you know, all of the sort of high pressure sales tactics that the manufacturer does on the doctors, you know, it uh, through their brochures, through their medical articles, through their sales reps who show up at their office, through their, you know, when they go to a convention, you know, and they, and, um, you know, and, and just the constant reminders, you know, or, or, you know, um, reinforcement with the doctors where they're trying to just make them feel comfortable and that this is a safe drug that they need to give to their patients. So you're right. I mean, they really are uh, just as much of a, a, of a victim. They are. And look, they're just, they're doing their job. They're trying to take care of sick people, trying to give their clients and their patients the best information. And they trust the drug companies to be honest. And when the drug companies aren't honest, you know, they pass on information that is, that, that's not truthful, but not from any fault of them, of, of the doctors. Yeah. And I guess, and you had additionally on top of that is if a doctor did stand up and say, Hey, this looks like it's causing, you know, breast cancer, then all of a sudden that doctor uh, would get punished by the company or get blackballed. Absolutely. Absolutely. We saw it over and over again. And we were able to show the jury how punitive Wyeth was against people that were speaking out. Um, well, again, this has just been great work, and, and I, I just want to let our listeners know the case that we've been talking about is Rowat Forrester and Schofield versus Wyeth. It was tried back in October or September and October of 2007 in Washoe County, Nevada, uh, and the total result of, the, uh, of it was uh, in excess of $134 million uh, for these three, uh, three women. So, uh, again, just uh, fantastic work. 
And, uh, and we, our guest has been Zoe Littlepage. Again, uh, Zoe is a uh, partner at Littlepage Booth Lechman in Houston, Texas. And you can look up Zoe at littlepagebooth.com. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.